people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 39. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Rodika Damian, Associate Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Houston, to talk about how life experiences affect personality development and career success, which is one of her primary research interests. Radhika's research also focuses on the personality and social factors that contribute to career success, how people can overcome adversity, and which factors promote a healthy development across one's lifespan. With that, Radhika, is there anything else you would like to add about yourself before we dive into the episode? Thank you both for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. And I think this is a pretty good summary of my research interests. Uh, speaking of uh, life experiences, both challenging and rewarding, having become a first-time parent during the pandemic, I'd like to congratulate all parents for keeping their heads above water, even if only barely during these difficult times, and uh, kids for being uh, their joyful, cute selves, giving us all hope. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks, Radhika, for for joining us today. Uh, for for the folks, uh, for the folks in the audience, and the folks listening, uh, they should know that you are a, a superstar in the field of personality psychology. Um, obviously, a PhD in personality psychology, and I think I first uh, started to become aware of your research when you were a, uh, a, a what, what do you call that? A postdoctoral student at the university of Illinois worked on some really major projects looking at, and some of the things we're going to talk about today. So I won't spoil too much looking at personality change, looking at how uh, personality is related to really important life outcomes and career success and comparing that to things like, IQ, comparing that to things like socioeconomic status. Also, you've done some fascinating and super popular work on um, uh, birth order, which is always a fun topic. I mean, you, it's it's really hard as a personality psychologist when you run into people and they tell you about, well, I'm the youngest, so therefore this. And you've done some really awesome work showing that, well, maybe our intuitions about birth order really aren't all uh, accurate. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It's going to be awesome to have you here and, and we re really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Awesome. Thank you. Look forward to chatting with you. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you for your kind introduction. Too kind. <laughs> well, just so the audience knows, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, Ryan sent me an email saying, hey, there's this person who just went through the assessments, and um, I wondered if you wanted to give, give her feedback. And I'm kind of like, well, who was it? Or who is it? And, and he tells me, and I'm thinking, you know, here I am just this, like, PR person with a PR background, and I'm about to do a Hogan assessment feedback for somebody with a PhD in psychology. So I'm, I was 
I was panicked and intimidated at the time, but I think the <laughs> session went well. I hope, hopefully you got something out of it, but. Oh, it I, was amazing. No, no, no. That feedback was amazing. Like I actually learned a lot about myself. So I, I often mention the feedback you guys gave me about my own personality to my class when I teach personality uh, at the undergrad level. Uh, it was amazing because your questions are just so much about kind of like how also how others see you not just about how you think others see you rather than just how you see yourself so i really actually learned a lot about kind of making that distinction for myself so very cool assessment well, you did a great job well good because i was terrified um, so <laughs> didn't show oh well, good okay uh well, first off, we brought you on the podcast today to talk about how life experiences affect personality development and career success. So I guess my first question is, what got you interested in researching this topic in the first place? Uh, so it's uh, I grew up in post-communist Romania. So the Berlin Wall fell down, fell on when I was four. Uh, so I'm a so-called revolution child. So that means that I grew up being told um, that unlike my parents, I had the freedom to pursue a meaningful career that would make me happy. And that also that education was my um, ticket to, to kind of way out, sort of ticket to a better life. Um, so I was, um, so a lot of my life has kind of been revolved around achievement, um, just because of the kind of social cultural context I grew up in and career success. And, uh, I'm part of what we refer to in Romania as the second large wave of migration post-communism, where the first wave, a lot of people left as, um, um, manual laborers, and then the second wave was students, so people going to study abroad. Um, and I was at the beginning of that wave, so among the first generations to leave. We have a huge brain drain problem in Romania. Um, so you, it's you know, like my whole life has been about <laughs> leaving my family, my country, my culture, and everything to pursue achievement and career success because I was told growing up that that's how you have a happy life. So it's just been, I think a lot of psychologists, maybe it's not the ideal way to approach science, but I think a lot of us do this, like look a little bit inward to find interesting topics. <laughs> uh, and um, so, yeah, so a lot of, uh, I, I've just always been interested in like, how do people overcome challenging life experiences and how that translates into, um, life success and also uh, moving abroad by myself at 19 I went for college in Germany um, that was highly unusual my extended family was outraged that my parents allowed me to go they got in trouble like they weren't spoken to for like three years <laughs> until I graduated and everything was fine um, so it's um, it was like a whole so and I saw a lot of people from a lot of kind of walks of life um, go, moving to Germany and then to the US um, so I've just realized that there's so many different ways of thinking about success, what success is and different paths and um, just so, so much individual difference in um, approaching yeah, life experiences, coping with them. Um, and I didn't actually know much about, so I was interested in all these topics, but I didn't know about the field of personality. We actually didn't have any personality courses in undergrad. Um, but then I moved for my PhD at UC Davis um, I mean, intending to study creativity and career success. And then I took a class from Rick Robbins and I realized, well, personality is really the field that will allow me to study the whole person and the complexities I'm interested in. 
Um, and then I did my postdoc at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign with Brent Roberts, and that really got me even more into life experiences and personality development uh, with my added flavor of kind of being interested in overcoming challenges and career success and creativity. So that's kind of a short-ish <laughs> summary. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think, well, first of all, I didn't know some of that background about you. So thanks for sharing that. Um, the other thing uh, that, that comes to mind here, uh, Rodika, is that uh, when we think about career success, it seems like a really important topic. It seems like it's something that you would see studied a lot. But my take is that it's not studied that much, particularly in the field of personality psychology, but in social psychology more broadly. I don't feel like it's studied that much there. I mean, there's, of course, some research on it, but given the the importance of the topic, and I mean, I think most of our audience, a lot of the people who would be, are listening to this podcast are going to think this is a naturally intuitively important topic. It feels somehow still understudied to me. Does does that feel like that to you or, or, or do you do you have a, a different point of view? No, I completely agree. So that was, um, I was also thinking strategically. So this is something I've always been passionate about, uh, but also pursuing, you know, a career with focus, this focus. I was also a little bit strategic looking through the field and thinking, what could I add that's somewhat novel? Uh, and I did feel like that was a big, um, reasonably large gap in uh, the pursuits of social personality psychology in general um so i think a lot of maybe a lot of psych uh, yeah a lot of psychologists focused on well-being and this kind of more um inward maybe but of course io psychology is focused on career success but then it not with the same flavor that social personality psychology can often offer so i thought this was a really good merger of uh, different fields within psychology so i t certainly agree with you well, excellent. So that's a that's a great way to kind of kick things off and, and help the audience understand a little bit more about what got you interested in that topic. So, I guess moving forward, based on your research, you know, how does personality predict career success across one's lifespan? <laughs> so broad question, but uh, I I mean I think there's we can break that down a little bit so we can ask. Does personality add anything, you know, above and beyond your socioeconomic status or uh, do personality traits add anything above intelligence? Um, so, of course, I'm not trying to say that intelligence is separate from personality. Pe some people think it's part of personality, but different from personality traits, such as how hardworking you are or how sociable you are. Um, so do these personality traits add anything above socioeconomic status and intelligence? And I think we have a lot of evidence now from a lot of different studies, meta-analyses, um, that that is the case. Um, my colleagues and I have also done uh, large studies of um, one in the U.S. So of 80,000 people, um, another one in um, Luxembourg of 2,000 people. And these are all across the entire lifespan. So people measured uh, having their personality traits either self-reported or reported by their teachers when they're adolescents. Um, and then seeing how uh, these uh, personality traits measured back then predicted their income, occupational prestige, and education uh, 40 or 50 years later. Um, respectively. So, and we find that, um, of course, socioeconomic status matters a lot. So people who are better off to begin with have a better chance at higher education, more prestigious jobs, more future income. This is not surprising. Uh, but 
when you hold that constant, so um, statistically and so assuming uh, people are equal on SCS, um, personality traits um, certainly add something above and beyond that. Um, not it's not as large of an effect as the effect of um, socioeconomic status and intelligence, but it is meaningful. Um, so I can give an example. Um, whereas um, with um, let's say with parental socioeconomic status um, at age 16, um, going from minus one to plus one standard deviation, so kind of from below average to above average, um, will give you, being richer, basically would give you 11 additional months of education later on, versus being conscientious, so holding socioeconomic status constant will give you three extra months. That's a whole semester. So this is holding constant SES and intelligence. Intelligence has a huge effect as well um, on future work outcomes. Um, so about um, twice as large as the one of SCS, it's especially important for education. But the point is that um, personality traits certainly add something above socioeconomic status and intelligence. And in particular for work outcomes, it's conscientiousness is the one that comes, um, that shows up over and over again. So this is how organized, responsible, um, and um, hardworking, industrious you are. Uh, there's other traits that are important too in the work context. Uh, so extraversion, how um, sociable and maybe a little bit dominant, kind of have leadership abilities as well. Um, this also predicts educational attainment, income, occupational prestige, um, and um, emotional stability is another one that uh, predicts. Um, so the more emotionally stable you are, you tend to have better academic and job performance. So uh, you you talked about conscientiousness as just like one uh, you know uh, the effect of that, but what if what happens when we start adding um, all of these personality traits together? It sounds to me like, and and I mean I think I know, but maybe I don't. It's been a while since I've read your papers. Um, uh, it sounds to me like when we start adding. Entire configurations of personality traits together, entire constellations of personalities, where we might be starting to get around about the same effects as things like uh, socioeconomic status or even IQ. Does that sound right, or is that not quite consistent with your data? Um, so, in this particular paper, um, I don't think we've done that because we we haven't done that because the original scale um, was. It, so this was because the data was across um, 50 years, uh -huh. the original personality scale used was not the um, big five. So it wasn't quite right. as good <laughs> as the more modern personality scales. So the different personality factors were a little bit um, more uh, highly correlated with each other. So we couldn't really look at all of them together because it's much multicollinearity. However, in other papers and papers I'm currently working on and papers from multiple different data sets, um, like um, so Iceland, so Europe, the US, uh, Germany, like all the different, it does appear over and over again that they do the different personality traits when you have a really good measurement, uh, they do kind of each add something up. And when you look at overall impact, uh, you do end up with a larger effect across the, the whole personality. Um, 
so not just one trait, you end up with effects as uh, so larger and much closer to the effects of SES and intelligence. And um, these effects, also another interesting thing you can study is what's the overall effect of personality versus SES and intelligence, for example, across different life outcomes, such as, so could you have career success, but you can also look at happiness, relationships, that sort of stuff. And what you tend to find is that... Um, the effect of personality tends to be to dominate. So to be the overall effect of personality is larger than SES and intelligence, especially for things that are more like yeah, happiness, relationships, that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, personality and intelligence are the most important for occupational outcomes, with the exception of education in the U.S., where in, where SES still makes has a huge impact on educational attainment because uh, education is expensive. Um, so so yeah. So basically, the more uh, person oriented is the outcome, so the less you need the input, you know, SES, and uh, the more impact the personality overall personality has. Uh, but intelligence, yeah, uh, still has a huge effect, uh, as equal um, or higher than that of personality traits for you know, specifically educational outcomes, that sort of stuff. But the further you go away from specifically educational achievement and more into, you know, maybe income or stuff that's um, where personality might matter even more than test performance, that's when you get the bigger effect of overall personality. Well, that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, for for somebody like me, I think of that as a pretty empowering kind of message, right? I think often, yeah. you know, look, we obviously know that there are situational factors, right? I mean, you growing up in Romania, I'm sure you can identify, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who faced um, circumstances that made it very difficult for yes. them to um, achieve certain levels of career success or, or whatever that may be. Um, and, and so we we know SES is really important. We know, um, as you've mentioned already, IQ is important. But I think at the same time, knowing that like the behaviors that we engage in, um, you know, the the way we interact with other people um, can have an, a, a critical impact on our lives. I think I think of that as empowering. Now, I know on the other side, and I don't think we're going to get into this today. We know that there's genetic effects of personality as well, mm-hmm. but it's still at, at some level. I think. Um, it feels anyway to the everyday individual like we have a little bit more control of what we say and what we do um, and, and how we interact with people, what things we choose to go after. Um, so to me, I feel I feel like that's very empowering. I completely agree. So um, I think a lot of people, if you tell them that personality can have an impact on you know future life outcomes, a lot of people who don't think it's empowering, it's because they think you're stuck with your personality and that it's fully genetically determined. But that's mm-hmm. not correct. Um, so yes, there is a genetic um, um, input there. You know, maybe we think forty percent of variability or something like that. Um, but the rest is you, there's still we we'll, we'll, might talk later about personality change. So there's uh, there there are things you can uh, uh, do to your personality. Um, part of it could also be volitional. So so you could change your personality in ways that um, might be more beneficial for what you want to achieve. So I think that it's empowering because personality can change, and yeah, it feels like you have more of an input. And um, something else um, I wanted to mention, you reminded me of, um, is that we did look in. Um, 
papers I mentioned earlier of interactions the, between personality and socioeconomic status. And exactly as you're saying, so it's actually, we actually found for some personality traits like conscientiousness that uh, have being higher in conscientiousness helped people at lower levels of SCS, even more than people at higher levels of SCS. So that's called resource substitution. Um, so the theory there is that um, basically if, if you already have a high SCS level, then it doesn't matter as much how hardworking you are. You're going to end up with a, a college degree no matter what. Uh, but if you're at lower uh, levels of SCS, um, being hardworking is going to matter more uh, for you than for the higher level people, because that's when you might, you know, impress a teacher who might then give you, borrow, lend you some books or stuff like that. Um, now, the the effect of personality traits wasn't in our findings. It wasn't enough to fully compensate. So basically, a very very hardworking person who um, was born extremely poor didn't end up with higher, on average, higher educational levels than someone who was born wealthy but was kind of lazy. Um, so it wasn't like a full compensation effect, but uh, still having these adaptive traits helped the more disadvantaged people even more. Um, so that is um, something that's, um, but again, like having an adaptive personality, it's a little bit, you have a little bit of that lucky draw of the genetics, but there's also, you know, good, um, I, yeah, like there's, I was going to say good parenting, although we also know that maybe parenting is not as effective at impacting personality as we might think we could. Um, but, um, but I think, yeah, you're right. It's still empowering to know that there is something that you, um, that will, can help you overcome the challenges. Well, so my next question you can keep your answer as succinct as you want <laughs> um, because it's a, it's probably a question that by asking it, we could spend the, the next three hours talking about it. But, um, you know, at a, at a high level, how does personality change throughout someone's lifespan? Right. So uh, there's, I think so there's, there's different kinds of personality change. So there's fast and slow personality change. So if you talk about slow personality change, so that's just kind of, um, the average um, natural um, patterns of change we see just with the passage of, when you just take into account the passage of time. Um, uh, we, I did a study with my colleagues on uh, almost 2000 um, people who were tracked again from uh, uh, high school to 50 years later. And we had their personality assessments when they're 16 and 66. Um, and we found that on average, people relative to their younger selves increased in um, emotional stability, conscientiousness, um, and agreeableness. So people became more responsible, more um, emotionally stable, and more empathetic, compassionate as they grew older. Um, so this was the average pattern of change. Um, and this is very consistent with prior meta-analyses and a lot of different studies done across shorter uh, periods of time um, in across many different, several different countries. So uh, this is a pattern of uh, so-called maturation. So the idea is that as we grow older, we become uh, better adapted at coping with life's challenges. So what do you need to better cope with um, life's challenges, like having a job and a family? You need to be responsible, organized, uh, empathetic, compassionate to maintain your relationships, you know, responsible to keep your job and, uh, um, 
emotionally stable to cope with all the problems thrown at you <laughs> throughout your life. So now this is the, the average pattern. So not everybody changes in the same way. You do have, uh, you know, some people change in opposite ways or some people are remain stable. Um, and this is one way in which you can approach per, what we call personality change across the lifetime is how do we change relative to our younger selves? Uh, but you can also ask the question of how do we change relative to other people? Um, and there you also see change there, but you also see some degree of stability, um, meaning that, let's say, if you're the most uh, sociable person in your peer group when you're 16, you're probably still going to be more sociable than others when, when you're older. So there's there's some stability in our personalities across the lifespan. You can recognize yourself throughout time, but there are also ways in which we um, change and mature as we grow older, potentially in response to trying to become becoming better adapted at coping with life's challenges. So it's all good news, I think, in terms of personality change. So so that's kind of the natural maturation process. But then we can also talk about um, other ways in which personality can change that may be faster or like due to, you know, therapy, life experiences, or even volitional personality change. So when you are making concentrated efforts, um, to changing personality in a way in which you want. Well, do you want to go? I, I was yeah, go ahead, say, Ryan, if we wanted to, I'm curious, you brought up how life experiences affect a person's mm-hmm. personality. I was curious if you would, if you could go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So the research here is, uh, is fascinating and tricky to do and a little bit murky. And sometimes the fa- findings are mixed. Um, um, so we, we think that, for example, getting your first job, there seems to be consi- relatively consistent evidence about that, that getting your first job um, might push you to increased levels of conscientiousness. Um, and um, then the, there's a lot of debate on how whether parenting, becoming a first-time parent, changes your personality. And initially, people expected that that should make you more conscientious too. But newer evidence suggests that maybe it doesn't change your personality. It just seems to lower self-esteem in mothers. <laughs> um, so uh, it's uh, that the, the the jury's still out on that one. Um, then there's um, things like. Um, Again, some studies find that having a chronic, being diagnosed with chronic illness might uh, change your extroversion or emotional stability levels. But then you also have studies kind of the opposite direction. And then my interest, stuff that I've looked at is um, um, nat- natural disaster um, because we had this massive hurricane in Houston, Hurricane Harvey, the second most devastating hurricane in U.S. history. And... Um, um, so I kind of wondered how do natural disasters uh, as life experiences uh, can predict personality change. And um, I didn't find personality change in that context. Uh, and there was one other study on uh, earthquakes from New Zealand that also didn't find personality change there. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes people find average levels of personality change following certain life experiences other times we do not find personality change, um, but there's always a significant variability between people's developmental patterns. Um, so there's always some people who change in adaptive ways, some people who change in maladaptive ways, and people who remain who are, remain stable or 
um, are resilient to that life experience. So uh, to me, uh, the key question and something I'm very um, uh, much trying to do in my career is to understand what are the factors that can predict which of those uh, trajectories you're going to take. So how do you differentiate? So yeah, you don't find anything as an average pattern because not everybody changes in a consistent, like there's not enough people basically who change in that same way. But maybe um, all these change patterns are canceling each other out because there's so much individual variation. So I would love to better understand how you can predict which developmental trajectory people are going to take. And that likely varies depending on how that life experience is, uh, affects them in particular, but I don't know exactly what those factors are. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting area for study. It, it reminds me, uh, Rodika, that, um, gosh, some years when I was in grad school, uh, we had this data set and I was doing some stuff with this data set that this was, I was spending too much time around the evolutionary psychologist at the time. And I was doing some analysis on this that had to do with life history. You, 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 this like fast versus slow life history stuff. You're familiar with all that. Yeah. So, and we had basically found a way to score people uh, for having this sort of fast life history pattern. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, in some respects, the prediction would be that uh, that this fast life history would lead. You know, there's a lot of volatility when you're a child. That's what the kinds of things that we were mostly looking at was how vi- volatile was your childhood, how stable was it, how predictable, how safe was it. Mm-hmm. And these are people who had pretty much had very volatile ones that weren't safe. And um, and it was a small data set, but I remember really distinctly. There were just, it just really stood out as two patterns that there were some people who just seemed to be thriving. Now that right now they were college students, right? Mm-hmm. It just seemed to be thriving. And then another group of people who just seemed like they were really down. They were really, you know, almost depressed. And, um, overall there was no effect, right? It seemed like overall you didn't see anything. You just saw these two groups that sort of stood out. And I, I never, you know, was able to figure out, well, what is it that makes those two groups different? And again, it was a small sample. So I thought, well, maybe there's not, or maybe I'm just seeing patterns that aren't really there. I don't know. Um, But, but I mean, I think that would be a huge uh, discovery if we can identify those kinds of things. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, And actually, so I had a similar experience. So when I was in grad school, I did this study of African-American creative geniuses. So these are highly eminent people who left changed history. Um, And um, it's... um, it included actually the whole population of um, of um, African Americans that uh, who who are considered creative geniuses based on encyclopedia sources, mm. um, and um, that's what you find is, and this is consistent for African American creative geniuses as well as for um, European American uh, and for other you know not just American <laughs> uh, creative geniuses. They a lot of them have a lot of. Um, uh, adverse child exper- childhood mm-hmm. experiences um, and have overcome a lot of challenges and so on. So, um, and especially for the African American creative geniuses, you see some, um, and especially because this was a historical sample, um, they just have gone, many of them, through really horrible experiences. 
and have overcome them and clearly thrived in in terms of their career success. So the question is, and in fact, within that population, it's the more adverse experiences they had, the more <laughs> successful they were, which wow. is not what you find in the, I tried to replicate that in the general population. You obviously find a negative effect. The more adverse <laughs> you have, the worse yeah. you are off. Um, so it's very, um, yeah, very strange to find that. And there's, there's reasons for that. So you have, um, um, so one explanation, again, this is a highly selective sample. We're talking right. the entire population of African-American geniuses was something like 297. That's so there's like the survivorship bias, right. so to speak. So that's yeah. a collider effect. So you're basically wow. selecting your outcome, your outcome, you're selecting people based on the outcome. So then your correlation between any other variable and the outcome is going to be biased um, mm -hmm. because you have not, you do not have in your sample all the people who had horrible adverse experiences and did not end up to creative geniuses. So you're really messing up the correlation there. So that's one statistical explanation. Another explanation is that there's just something very, very special about them. That's the thing that both helps them cope with adversity and be so amazingly mm -hmm. creative. Um, so that would be very interesting to find uh, if that's the case. Uh, but again, when I try to look at this in even very large population samples, you know, 80,000 people, it's, there's just probably so few people who are at that level that it's mm -hmm. hard to find an overall effect of what is the moderator, like what right. is the factor that makes some people thrive in the face of adversity. Um, so still looking for that one. I still think <laughs> that we can find out more about it than we know currently. There must be some kind of, um, coping or something, but it could also be just so very specific to each individual that each of those people found the creative way to cope with adversity that's very specific to them. Uh, so then then we might not find the general um, solution. <laughs> so when someone does experience the, like a personality change through these life experiences, mm -hmm. how have you seen that affect their overall career success? Yeah, so that's a really important question as well, because um, even though we have a lot of research on personality change, uh, as uh, Ryan was saying earlier, because we don't have that much research in, in this uh, field on career success, we actually have very little research on personality change and career success, which is surprising because um, the whole part of the reason we're interested in personality change is to say, well, if we can change our personalities, the next step is what are inter, um, interventions for this? And then, the, of course, the, why would you do an intervention if you don't know if the change can have any benef benefits? So in my opinion, trying to understand um, how personality change in itself, above and beyond you know, your initial starting point, um, how that can affect important outcomes, life outcomes such as career success, that's key to really understanding the whole worth of even bothering with personality change or trying to do interventions. Um, and But there's very few studies on this. Uh, but what we've seen so far, um, so I did, I did one study. I have a colleague who did a study on an Icelandic sample. And then there's some, um, a couple of other studies uh, from uh, uh, Europe. Uh, and we see, again, that uh, increasing levels of conscientiousness, so even above and beyond your starting point, uh, do have beneficial effects on your later on career success. Um, 
it's not a huge effect, but um, there's some evidence for that. So in other words, even if you start off, so in, in my study, the kids there, this was on Mexican origin um, kids with my colleagues in um, California. Um, and um, you see that even kids who started off maybe low in uh, um, effortful control, which is the basically a conscientiousness measure in children, um, they started off low. Uh, if they had an, an improvement, uh, then you could see a little bit of improvement in their future career outcomes, um, even if they were lower than their peers. So um, having positive change in personality uh, can be beneficial uh, regardless of where you start at. Of course, the ones who start off um, better off have better outcomes, but but the change matters as well in and of itself. So that does argue a little bit for the possible benefit of uh, interventions. Well, uh, well, let's uh, let me dig a little bit on that personality change issue because I, I mean I think it's really interesting, and um, I think that these sort of intervention-based personality changes have a lot of potential. Of course, a lot of the work we do with coaching and giving people mm -hmm. feedback is designed around that. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder, uh, you know, about this notion that, uh, you know, oh, improving conscientiousness is good or is always good. I, I, I wonder, like, is it always a good thing? And, and I'm reminded of a study that was published, gosh, when was this published? Uh, maybe five or six years ago. Um this was uh, on a on a game show in France. There was like a mm -hmm. game show that was basically the Milgram experiment. Do mm -hmm. Do you know the study I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. They tried to replicate that on the game show, right? But I haven't yeah, so read they, the paper. I've yeah. So they, they they yeah. So they had a game show and they ended up measuring personality of these participants. Mm -hmm. um, and what they found, and, and for those who, who aren't familiar, you can uh, who are listening, you can look up the Milgram experiment and find some videos on YouTube online to, to see what this is like. But but it's essentially uh, a person is instructing one person to shock someone else, and and that's the key measure is how far will this person go if this authority figure keeps telling you to press this button to give someone electrical shocks? How far will you go before you will stop? And what they found in this study, um, again, this was of people who thought they were in it, they they didn't. Know know they were on a game show as, as my understanding or maybe they did i don't know in any case these people um were, were much more likely to keep following the authority figure if uh they were high in conscientiousness which i think makes sense when you think about the rule following yeah. part of conscientiousness so you know i wonder you know th there may be some downsides that we haven't really thought about all the mm -hmm. time yeah, then this is actually a um, point that people always bring up when you talk about personality change interventions specifically targeted at conscientiousness. People worry that you're going to make everybody boring or too rule-following. <laughs> I certainly agree that uh, I agree that variability in the population is good. So I think that we have individual differences for a reason. I don't think we should, you know, I think we put value judgments on personality traits because we see some outcomes. And if you're a company, um, and you you're trying to maximize profit then you by selecting people higher in conscientiousness you're probably gonna do that uh but it might depend i guess exactly what your company is doing so maybe if you are looking for creative artists then maybe that's less important than if you're looking for accountants so the predictive you you're gonna have to look on a case-by-case -case basis to see you know what is um the predictability for what you're looking at i know for sure that you know the the u.s army is so 
selecting um, based on conscientiousness because they're saving, you know, each recruit costs something like $160,000 and after six months of training for training and after training, they can drop out. So the U.S. Army doesn't want to waste the money. And by right. selecting based on conscientiousness, they're actually saving a lot of money because a lot of the recruits they pay for end up staying if they're more conscientious. But again, that's, you know, the army where you do look for rule following. Um, right. But uh, I do have to say that because this is brought up a lot, so a lot of studies have tried to look for this curvilinear effect mm-hmm. of conscientiousness where you say, okay, is there a point at which conscientiousness will, will, will start hurting you? And we do not find this uh, in repeated studies on large samples. We do not seem to find this curvilinear effect. Now, of course, you look at the personality disorder literature and then they say, well, really extremely high pathological levels of conscientiousness may translate into obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Uh, But then other people argue that Actually, you also need high levels of neuroticism, so low emotional mm, stability combined with that conscientiousness to lead to those problems. Um, so I think a lot of people, uh, I think the evi- there, I have not seen convincing evidence for this curvilinear effect, like where conscientiousness starts yeah. being bad for you. However, that being said, it, the effect is not as strong for all job outcomes and across all jobs. Like even in my paper, like we had, you know, multiple job outcomes, the effects of personality that uh, change in conscientiousness weren't significant across all the outcomes. Like mm-hmm. you have to, so it's not something that's necessarily, yeah, universally the solution for everything, right, right. for every job. And it's also, the effects are also not super large. Um, but I don't know that with the, with an you know intervention, I wouldn't necessarily worry that everybody's gonna become like too rule following or so on because everybody has their own starting point. So even if you shift people, you still end up having individual differences. Mm-hmm. And also, we cannot magically change people's personalities. They really have to choose. That's one of the key findings with the few intervention studies we have is that nobody can change your personality. You're the one who has to work at it. So you, and you have to choose which trait you want to change in. You have to really want that specific change because personality change is not one magic solution. It's more about uh, kind of like healthy eating. It's something you have to do constantly. Right, you have to practice. You, want to see the yeah. effects. you can't just do it for a month and then it's done. Uh, it's just the change in habits and you have to keep those habits if you want to keep seeing the change. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I would also, I, I totally agree with your point about the outcomes, uh, uh, what, what outcome is being examined, because of course, in data, like we have uh, consci- our, our measure of conscientious prudence uh, predicts all kinds of really positive outcomes for um, what we would call individual contributors, right? So. Yeah. Your your typical employee conscientiousness is absolutely what the what your boss is looking for, right. but but we we don't see that as so successful in leadership roles. Mm-hmm. So when people are top executives, in fact, top executives tend to score lower mm-hmm. on prudence than most mm-hmm. uh, uh, average employees. So um, I think you know if you're looking at if, if you're looking at the outcome as attainment, uh, getting to a leadership position. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not clear that conscientiousness is really the thing you want to keep developing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's an important point because exactly. So different different types of positions, jobs have different requirements. So you want to have a, a specialized, yeah, kind of a customized um, understanding of what is the best predictor for that specific thing you're looking at. I totally agree. 
And so earlier we, we talked a little bit about what my next question will focus on, but I wanted to dig in a little bit deeper on this because I, I, I think it's important and I, I'm curious to learn more about it. And that's the fact that not everyone is born into the same situation, whether that be geographically, culturally, uh, socioeconomically. Um, so how might one's background affect the development of their personality? Um, yeah, I think that's, so there's, there's some evidence that, um, that socioeconomic status like can translate into some personality change, but that's, it's somewhat uh, controversial and can (laughs) sound a little bit problematic. Um, So they're basically from sociological studies. uh, They, they, they suggested that um, higher SES might promote like more conscientiousness. And their hypothesis was that, um, the parents are more conscientious to begin with, and that's why they attained higher SES, and that kind of translated to the next generation. Uh, that's a little bit problematic, of course. Just like when you talk about it, it can get awkward. <laughs> that's just sort of what their findings showed. So there could be the they called it the um, kind of the propagation or translation of socioeconomic status across generations. Um, so that's one. Um, another one that's about background uh, that's always cited, as Ryan was mentioning earlier, is that people think birth order. Uh, that's something, you know, part of your background and your family um, context growing up. People think that uh, can affect your personality. But now we have a lot of large studies that um, from the U.S., U.K., Germany, suggesting that there are no birth order effects in, in, on personality. So people thought that if you grew up to be the firstborn, you might grow up to be more responsible uh, because you're trying to do parent-pleasing um, And if you're the later born, you're trying to get parents' attention by being different from the firstborn. So you're the more fun, creative one. Uh, But we don't really see any evidence for that. Um, So um, culturally, um, it's it's interesting because a lot of cross-cultural studies that, you know, you can look at personality cross-culturally where you would take the same measurement and... um, uh, then translate it and apply it to different countries. And there you can see differences. So you can see, for example, that French people are more neurotic than Germans or um, Germans are more conscientious than the French. So kind of also go hand in hand with some stereotypes. Um, uh, but there's issues with using the same measurement of personality across different cultures because um and, and people who study, because it might not be the same, right? So, so the same constructs might not be relevant. We do see some universality in constructs, but at the same time, a lot of people argue that you should really study personality from within each culture. Um, so then when you do that, when you develop the skills kind of from the bottom up within each culture, you do find some differences where something like openness to experience will look different in China from the US. So I think... Um, there are um, cultural and geographical differences in personality. Um, um, there seems to be some evidence that there seem to be differences based on socioeconomic status. Um, and um, I think to the extent to which um, all of these factors come with different life experiences, um, different resources, um, I think there's definitely potential for the um different impacts on development. Um, 
So it's kind of a, yeah, it's a broad question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to dig in a, a little bit on on some of these. So uh, thinking about um, well, let, let, I guess let's just start with um, the uh, the well. Which one do I want to start with? Let's start with uh, the, <laughs> the the socioeconomic uh, stuff mm-hmm. there. So um, I think that's a little. Uh, I think there's a related argument that people make mm-hmm. with IQ. Does that is it a similar kind of argument or is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That and so that gets. Um, so yeah, so that gets really tricky. But there is, however, if you think of, um, so there, I'm from developmental psychology. If you think of the Romanian orphan studies, this is I know this is uh, whenever I talk about this, people ask me if I was an orphan. I am not. An orphan. <laughs> so what happened is during communism, like there were a lot of um, there were all these hidden orphanages. So there are these. Uh, maltreated children in institutions um and when once they people uh, the dictatorship ended people found out about all this and then a lot of some children were adopted especially in the uk uh, and there are a lot of studies done on these children because they had grown in, grown up in uh, severe deprivation both nutritional and no love and care there were really horrible circumstances so when you talk about such extreme um, socioeconomic adversity you see clear impacts on intelligence personality mm-hmm. development like literally they had so once the children were adopted and had better nutrition like their iq increased like obviously you know verbal ability increased like everything um you get from social contact good nutrition so if we're talking about ex- extreme adversity I think there's no question that there are impacts on intelligence mm-hmm. and personality. Um, now, um, with uh, something less extreme than that, uh, it just kind of gets more tricky to talk about. But there is um, evidence, for example, that um, your so self-concept, uh, so the kind of the trust you have in yourself and in your abilities, that uh, depends on your socioeconomic status too, where poorer kids don't trust that they can be good in math, for example. And then that can in turn uh, actually affect their math performance and their scores on a math test and so on. Um, so there, there is some impact, some burden maybe of low socioeconomic status yeah. that you have to overcome. Uh, yeah, I, I do remember... In grad school learning, uh, it was sort of this weird revelation that, oh, wow, if you raise everybody's socioeconomic status, right? If everybody gets good nutrition, everybody gets uh, access to education, um, like then genetics start playing a bigger role. I think it was on height is what we were actually talking about at the time. It's like the more, it was like these studies of height. turns out if, you know, if people get adequate nutrition, then almost all of height is explained by genetics. Yes, that's exactly right. I was going to mention this. I didn't know how to bring it up. So yeah, that's exactly right. So the more uh, equitable resources, like the, basically if everybody, yeah, it's exactly what you said. Genetics plays a bigger role because you could have, you could have had the next Einstein among those orphans, but right. they didn't have any food, so their brain couldn't develop. So their genetic potential didn't actually show up. Um, so, right. So the genetics actually matter more. So it's it's awkward. Like when you if you say that lower socioeconomic status people are going to perform worse on an IQ test, but that's not because they are. So this sounds offensive to people because people think you're saying, are you saying that uh, poorer people are not as smart? 
And that's right. not actually what um, I would be saying. I would actually just be saying that if you don't have the resources, you actually cannot express your true level of, you know, right. Right. Uh, so a child who like, we have huge effects on, um, on whether your parents like read you a lot of books um, as a small child, like on future reading ability, verbal ability, which will affect how you're going to score. I mean, on an IQ mm -hmm. test, I mean, what is an IQ test is, you know, it's a test. It's how well you score on a test. It has part of it is uh, genetic potential, but part of it is whether anybody's like taught you any words. Taught you anything. Right. <laughs> right. right. So, so there, there are um, differences in intelligence sometimes, you know, based on socioeconomic status, but, but it will be not because it's because your genetic potential yeah can't really express itself if you've been deprived. Um, and then with what the studies of the Romanian orphans show is that once you're no longer deprived, you see huge improvements. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very it's a funny uh, point. It just reminds me uh, earlier this fall, right? So usually when the kids get put into school at the beginning of the year, they have some kind of a test and things. And so she took my daughter, uh, who is six, uh, took one of these. Uh, test and she did very good on the the reading part of it but she didn't do very good on the math part of it mm -hmm. and i was like oh i'm you know kind of surprised and so we went and looked at the problems like that were on the test i'm like well i know why she didn't do very good on this <laughs> like nobody like we've never taught her like no one's right. ever taught her she never does she never seen that problem before there's no exactly. how could she possibly know how to how to solve yeah. it um mm -hmm. so it, yeah that's a good point right if you've never had that that exposure yeah. um to to those educational opportunities how could you possibly express it right. so the another really cool study related to that is a study of brazilian street children um so these are like very poor children who um end up like having have to in order to survive they like they sell things like fruit vegetables stuff like that and mm -hmm. kind of trade things um so if you give them an iq test a math iq test on paper with the sort of structure we expect they perform very poorly because they've never like seen a math problem on paper. Mm. But if you translate that ver into verb into communication and like about selling and trading things, which is what they do every day, they're going to do the same math problem that they couldn't do on paper. So oh, context also matters. Uh, so it's about your familiarity with, uh, the way the problems are posed to you in a specific test. So this gotcha. doesn't say that IQ tests don't have validity. They do have valid predictive validity. It's just that, um, you know, they it, because this, the thing is, if you do well on an IQ test, which measures a certain way of being, and then you measure the certain uh, how well you're going to do on a job in the same society, they're going to request the same type of skill. So doing well on that IQ test, all it all it shows that you have the skill requested required by that society, right? So, like for example, speaking English really well and being able to write it, that's going to be required in the job too. So the test has predictability; it predicts the outcome. The question is, did everyone have equal access to have learning that information that was then going to be useful for them both on the IQ test and on the job? <laughs> right. So it's right. really when we talk about, because this all gets into that huge problem with should we cancel GREs and SATs? And it's like, um, the problem is like not with the test itself, it's with people's access to what would have helped mm. them do well on, both right. on the test and on the job. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, I, I, oh. I know Blake. I know Blake's gonna kill us because we could talk about this stuff forever. But I, I'm gonna ask anyway. Sorry, Blake. Um, no, you're fine. <laughs> I, I have enough questions too. So. I, I, I'm gonna ask about um, about this birth order stuff because mm -hmm. it, 
every parent is going to say, well, I don't know. I have two kids and this kid does this, right? And, you know, even I as a parent catch myself looking at that. But I think, and I, I assume this is what you're, you would say, is that, um, you know, we're, we're so biased by age, right? We, we, yeah. we forget how important age is in development. Yeah, it's so I constantly, my husband makes fun of me because (laughs) I constantly say things about our firstborn that Uh are consistent with the birth order theory. And he's like, didn't you show that doesn't work? (laughs) So it's so difficult. And I know, and I laugh too, uh, because, um, but yeah, we're just biased by age. That's, that's it. So you, firstborns are supposed to be more mature and responsible and guess who's more mature and responsible? The older kid. So, and it's, I'm already noticing with my kid being uh, just almost 15 months old, I'm already noticing that I'm forgetting how, you know, helpless he used to be or how little he was able to do just like right. three months ago. Like I already, he walks so well now and I almost cannot remember a time when he couldn't walk. Or right? I sometimes <laughs> just stop and think, oh my God, this guy a year ago, he, or a little more than a year ago, he couldn't hold his own head. <laughs> now he's like <laughs> running around the house. So it's, it's really easy to forget and you're just kind of caught up in the moment. So I really think that's the biasing factor. I think we will always see parents being 100% convinced that there are differences between their firstborns and oh, secondborns in a consistent way that's consistent with age and consistent birth order theory. And the other thing I wanted to mention is just because birth order theory um, doesn't seem to be supported by the empirical by the recent empirical evidence, it doesn't mean that there are no individual differences between your children. They're going to have totally right. different personalities. And But what's funny is that, and then we attribute those to birth order. So right. uh, when I was doing a radio show once and there were callers and they called me and I said, your research that birth order doesn't matter for personality is wrong because I'm a firstborn and I'm more responsible than my sibling. And then the next person would call and they'll say, your research is wrong because I'm a second born and I'm more responsible than my sibling. So they will say the exact opposite and attribute it to the birth right. order. Um, and that actually proves my point is that everybody thinks that their personality is due to their birth order, but they all cancel each other out at the population level. So what this research shows is not that there will be no personality differences between siblings, but just that birth order is not the major explanatory factor. Um, well, okay, so that was actually what I was going to ask about, Ryan, was the birth order thing. Oh, I'm sitting here <laughs> thinking about what's the Thanksgiving table going to be like next week. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be sitting around with uh, my older brother, uh, who's the oldest, my, sis- my older sister, who is in the middle child, and then myself. And yeah, my brother is the most conscientious and responsible <laughs> one of the group. Um, my sister and I are the fun and creative ones, um, or at least we like to think so. So I'm trying to figure out how I can take this conversation and work it to my advantage. <laughs> Thanksgiving table. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking on this in the next few days. Yeah. You might be, maybe you're more responsible than you think and more organized and whatever than you think just in a different, with a different flavor. <laughs> yeah. I, I highly doubt it. But, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but I also want to say, I also want to say though, that, when if societies believe that birth orders matter, 
they can certainly shape society to reflect that. So if you believe that, like we have primogeniture, we had primogeniture practices, right? In like, uh, whatever, 19th century England or where the firstborn would get the entire family estate, the secondborn would what be, go into army and the thirdborn would go into the clergy. So those are like, these are all for boys and and um, the girls would just get married off. So this is, um, this was the rule. So everybody would do that. So then of course you're going to end up with the firstborns all being like, landowners <laughs> which that will have some effect on their personality because you we know that you know social roles there's social role theory that social roles will shape who you are so like if you get the job that requires you to be organized you're going to be more organized if you get the job that requires you to be more sociable you might become more sociable that's the theory at least we have some evidence for it still working on more but um so society can definitely shape you so i do find in my research that firstborns do tend to have slightly higher levels of education for example on average and that could be because parents expect firstborns to have uh, to be more conscientious maybe invest more money in that uh, or it could be because the college fund runs out by the time the second born is ready or so you can certainly if you believe in birth order theory you can certainly impact your kid's future. So that's kind of my point is to tell people that it's not really related to personality. So then you don't have to try to shape um, um, anything based on your beliefs with having to do with that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking through this over the next few days. So uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're having this conversation, but right. um, one more question before we, we let you go. Um, and it's one that, I just, I, in looking through some of your, your work, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, and, and that's in regard to, to Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it's important because I, I think it's no secret that we are seeing you know, some of these more catastrophic weather events mm-hmm. at a higher frequency than maybe we've, we've seen, at least in you know, what we've recorded from like a weather standpoint and things like that. So I, I think it's potentially something you know, that could play a role moving forward. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, in that month following hurricane Harvey, you know, it caused catastrophic damage. I think you said it was the second most destructive mm-hmm. hurricane in U S history. Well, you began collecting data to see how, you know, adverse experiences might affect personality change. Can you tell us about that research and what you found? Right. So we, we didn't have, um, unfortunately, we didn't have data on personality right before the hurricane. Um, so that's a limitation of the study. Uh, when I talk about the results, um, um, that um, we, we did measure personality immediately after and then a uh, year later. And we didn't find um, major dif- changes in personality, average changes in personality across the year following the hurricane, which, um, so it's a problem that we didn't have a pre-hurricane measurement, but at the same time, um, most of the change of personality was likely to happen uh, while people coped with recovering from the hurricane. And a lot of the damages, like Houston was recovering for the whole year following the hurricane. It was like a year later, we were still like, um, helping you know repaint people's houses and get mold out and stuff like that so it's it was it lasted the whole year so you could argue that that's when the personality change would happen and we didn't see average changes um and the earthquake study i talked about from new zealand they did have a pre-earthquake personality measurement and they also didn't see changes on average but we did see a huge amount of variability 
where some people did have maladaptive change, like became more neurotic, for example, others actually became less neurotic and others were stable. So it's there's a lot of variability and I just haven't found a way to predict those patterns. And I tried to predict them from the amount of a sort of objective hurricane impact they've had. So like if they've had water in their house, if they've lost their car, if they've lost their house, stuff like that. And those objective impacts we're not actually able to predict what trajectory people was, were going to take. Um, so I'm starting to think it's more about how people's subjective, people's subjective perception of the impact, um, of the hurricane impact, because, um, I mean, I've had students, you know, some who uh, were more what you'd call objectively impacted who were feeling better after it than others who were just kind of um, watching it on TV and, um, ended up feeling worse. Um, so, um, and we didn't have good measures because all of this had to be done really quickly. Uh, again, we had our measure started the study right after the hurricane. We were ourselves affected. Um, so it was very, um, uh, so we didn't have great subjective measures. So that's, I would say future studies can look into objective impacts. So did you have water in your house, but also how you perceived that, how that affected you. So again, we didn't find changes in the big five personality traits, but we did find impacts on well-being um, and we did find uh, negative impacts on well-being. And we also found negative impacts on uh, achievement. So this study was done on uh, University of Houston college students and their achievement levels. Um, we had achievement levels, so grade le grades before the hurricane as well. And they were negatively impacted by um, having had more objective hurricane impacts. So it's not to say that even if your big five personality traits don't change uh, much or there's no average pattern, um, it doesn't mean that these natural disasters don't have a huge impact in terms of your productivity, your well-being, and so on. That, that's, so that's really interesting. Of course, it impacted things, but it didn't impact the personality. You know, we got a lot of questions over the last couple of years about, um, you know, COVID and how has COVID affected personality? And 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 I know you're aware of the blog, and and I we I think we had Brandon on for an episode. If if Blake will remind me if I'm wrong about that, but um, to talk about. Um, you know, the degree to which COVID is affecting personality. And we found that, you know, much like in your study, that no real personality change affects. Um, but that doesn't, of course, of course, we know COVID affected a lot of people in a lot of yeah. ways. It just didn't affect those. And it's really interesting. I think a lot of people, you know, we even get questions. Uh, people say, well, when I get a question that says, like, I really enjoy being part of a crowd, you know, I think about that differently with COVID. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, that's okay that you think about it differently. But nonetheless, the people who are extroverted will still say, yeah, I do enjoy being part of a crowd. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go out and be in one, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's partly why. So I think that's one argument, exactly. And that's also the argument because people say, how come parenting doesn't appear to change your personality? And having become a parent, I feel like, yeah, I wouldn't say I've become more conscientious. I've just like maybe 
put focus on being conscientious in the child context. <laughs> so it's well, like, so you, I think you mentioned, mm-hmm. sorry, you mentioned that low self-esteem thing earlier. And I thought, yeah. wow, probably the self-esteem mm-hmm. comes from the real the realization that you have so little impact over what these guys turn out to do. Right. <laughs> Come on, why uh, would they listen to me? Yeah. I think I have another <laughs> hypothesis. All of these have to be tested. I think they're excellent hypotheses. For me, I actually, I, I, I feel like this applies to me, <laughs> the low self-esteem. And for me, it's that I feel like I don't, you know, 100% know what I'm doing. Actually, I don't 5% know what I'm doing. So I think it's just, um, I'm normally, I'm used to having training when I do things and nobody really trains you to be a parent. So I just feel less competent at raising a child than I feel at, uh, you know, at research. <laughs> but he's very happy. So maybe I'm somewhat competent, but it challenges your self-esteem, I feel. But that's just for me. Um Maybe this is all should be tested, but I think, yeah. So what you're saying in terms of, um, I think part of it, people uh, overestimate how much, uh, the, you know, something like the pandemic might change your personality because I think you can change your behaviors, um, without, uh, necessarily changing your personality. Although in the theory of personality change, if you do consistently change your, uh, behaviors across long periods of time that might translate into personality right. change. But the question is, how did we, did we change the true meaning of our behavior or did we change the context? So for example, let's say you're right. highly extroverted and you stopped going to concerts and meeting your friends in public. Maybe you just are making a lot of phone calls. So then you didn't really change your behavior. You just changed the look of your behavior. So you're right. still acting extroverted. So I think that's part of it. And I think another possibility is that um, the pandemic is changing personalities or hurricanes are, or whatever are changing people's personalities, but it's really, it's much more individualized. So for the pandemic, I wouldn't expect somebody who lost their spouse and their job to have the same uh, personality change as somebody who's just, you know, working from home and had to go to not couldn't go to restaurants, but everything else is fine in their life. Um, so Concerts, I, that's, you know, that's the real bummer, right? right. I'm so I'm like, so I think, um, um, so I, in, I'm, I am working on a study and I haven't analyzed the data yet, but on personality change, uh, during the pandemic. And I'm going to try to look at like more specific impacts that are kind of mm-hmm. come with the pandemic and see if maybe I can parse out some of that individual variability based on that. So it's not, not like the pandemic in general changed people's personalities, but maybe job loss due to the pandemic did or. Right. Know, yeah. Yeah, and there are some studies of job loss. I think I remember right. some German data sets yes. looking specifically at that. Mm-hmm. That job loss seems to decrease conscientiousness, for example, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. increase uh, emotional, like increase neuroticism. Mm-hmm. So I would expect that. So I would expect that maybe there's no average change in ev- how everybody changes in the pandemic, but the people who have lost their jobs and spouses, maybe we will see personality change there because previous research on that suggests that that's the case. So, yeah. Well, Rodika, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciated having you on. And I think this is, this is going to be a great episode for our listeners. And I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to do this. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rodika. It's always great to chat with you and to get connected with you and to hear what's going on uh, with your research. Uh, really looking forward to seeing some of these things. I know you've got a bunch of stuff at the pipeline right now uh, to seeing those come out as well. So thanks so much for coming on.
Thank you so much for inviting me. This was really fun chatting with you guys. And yeah, great, great work uh, on your podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 39. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.